The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We've, uh, we've looked at that. We've seen how God has been elevating and pointing toward Christ as the king of the kingdom of heaven. And how in Christ we see powerfully that he can do all things. There's nothing that he cannot do. He is sovereign and powerful and he is a king. Now, as we consider him as a king, an utterly unique king in all the history of the world, we see that history is full of the accounts of one king after the other. Now, some of the kings of history have been totally colorless. There's nothing about their reign that's worth studying. You read them, you find out when they were born and when they died and how long they were king and nothing else because they didn't do anything. Perhaps their reigns were characterized by selfishness or by laziness. But we see also some extraordinary kings throughout history. And we still have records of some of the things that they've done, these human kings. For example, Croesus, who was the final king of the kingdom of Lydia, lived around the time of, of Josiah of the Bible. He was known for his fabulous wealth. It seemed that everything in his kingdom was made of gold and silver. Some think he was even wealthier than Solomon. Or Caesar Augustus, who is the mightiest and most capable of all the Roman emperors, known as the architect of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. He put in place a style and a system of government that lasted longer than any other that's been found on the face of the earth. Or how about Richard the Lionheart of England, who led the Third Crusade? He was known for his physical size and for his strength. And when he was meeting with his Muslim counterpart and they were negotiating over the fate of Jerusalem, to show his prowess, he took out his sword and he cut in one hack, one mighty chop through a bar of iron. The uh, Romans, I mean, the uh, Muslim sultan was not all that impressed. He took a, uh, a feather pillow and sliced through with his razor-sharp scimitar. And so the two of them were amazed at each other. And so their sword prowess was what they were known by. Genghis Khan of Mongolia, known for his cruelty and his incessant hunger for the advancement of his geographic kingdom. When he died, he ruled over the largest kingdom that had ever been up to that point. Or Hung Wu of China, founder of the Ming Dynasty, 14th century AD, known for his love for education, set up schools, more schools uh, than had ever been seen in China up to that point. And so, because of his example, he was able to train and educate leaders and prepare them for future generations. The Ming Dynasty lasted the longest of any of the dynasties, 300 years. Or Prince Henry the Navigator of Portugal, who set up a school of navigation, and because of him, uh, navigators went all over the world, ultimately leading to Christopher Columbus. It's because of Prince Henry of Portugal that an entire nation of Brazil speaks the Portuguese language. Or Suleiman the Magnificent of Turkey, called the lawgiver of the Ottomans, lived around the time of Martin Luther. So powerful and strong was he that he brought his kingdom right up to the walls of Austria. And many people, including Luther, thought that the Turks were going to sweep right across Europe. Or Shah Jahan, the Mughal emperor of India, renowned for architecture. He left behind the Taj Mahal as a, as a memorial to his dead and beloved wife. Louis XIV of France, the Sun King, known for extravagance and luxury, left behind the Palace Versailles as a testimony to his love of these things. And Peter the Great of Russia, known for his humble taste, his versatility, incredible work ethic. He would wear common clothes like a peasant. 
enjoyed talking about shipbuilding or anything else with anybody who wanted to. He could easily be seen in the blacksmith shop working alongside the other blacksmiths. Or Fed Frederick the Great of Prussia, military genius whose battles are still studied at West Point. All of these kings were renowned for some extraordinary aspect to their kingdom. Now I ask you today, as you think about Jesus Christ, the king of the kingdom of heaven, what is the extraordinary aspect of his kingdom? Can you really choose just one thing? Is not his kingdom like a diamond that every time you turn it, another facet shines more brilliantly and more brightly? But I think as we've looked at Christ, as we study the exploits of the king of kings and of the Lord of lords, the king of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ, I think that his kingdom is, is characterized by, number one, perfect righteousness, and number two, absolute power, and number three, immeasurable mercy to the needy. First of all, perfect righteousness. The first words that Jesus speaks in the New Testament, he speaks to John the Baptist. When John hesitated to baptize him, didn't want to do it. And he said, let it be so now. We must fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' kingdom is founded on his love for purity and righteousness and holiness. Also, we've seen in Christ absolute power. Is there anything that can be done by power that Jesus Christ cannot do? He has all power. And no obstacle that faced him was too great. He had kingly power over disease and sickness and death. Anybody who was brought to him, he could heal, as we'll see even in the text today. He had absolute power over the elements. He had absolute power over demonic forces. He had power over all things. But we also see in Christ immeasurable mercy to the needy. He had a tender compassion for those that were needy. Now, what kind of needs? People think, first and foremost, of their own felt needs. You came in through the doors, I'm sure, with all kinds of difficulties in your life. We don't know what they are, but in a group this size, un undoubtedly there are, are needs more than we could even measure. And yet Jesus Christ is equal to each one of them, merciful and compassionate to each one. What kind of needs do you have? Perhaps financial needs, struggling to make ends meet. I pray for many of you who are unemployed or underemployed. You need a, you need a job. There are health needs. Day after day, I pray for many of you that are struggling with cancer or with some other disease or facing some operations. Health needs or loneliness. Anybody can be lonely. Perhaps a senior citizen remembering a spouse that's gone on to be with the Lord. Perhaps a younger person who's waiting to meet the spouse of their life and they're lonely. Loneliness or family struggles, broken relationships between husbands and wives, between parents and child. There are loneliness needs. All of these needs Jesus faced as well. All of them were there. And he was tender and compassionate to all of them. But I say to you today that Jesus points the way in the text today to the greatest need that any human being has. And that is the need for the for, for full forgiveness of sins. That our sins might be forgiven through his blood. And Jesus Christ, in his sovereign reign, through his perfect righteousness, through his absolute power, and through his tender mercy, he points the way to his kingdom, full forgiveness of sins. Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And that's what we face in our text today. Now, we also see in our text that it is only through personal faith in Jesus Christ that this gift is given. Now, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Now, in verse 2, it says, Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. The context is this. Jesus has just left the region of the Gadarenes. He's just, by a word of power, cast out legion. 
that most powerful of demons. And he leaves behind a single witness in the Decapolis, the ten-city region of the Gentiles. He says, go tell them the great things that God's done for you. Then he gets in his boat and he crosses back over to his hometown. Now, this is not Nazareth. Remember that they expelled him from Nazareth for preaching the truth. They didn't want to hear it. They said, a prophet has no honor in his own country. And out he went. He was expelled from Nazareth. And so he took up residence in Capernaum. And so this was his hometown. He went to Capernaum. It was his base area. Now, in verse 2, it says, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. And Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, take heart, your sins are forgiven. What is the faith that's demonstrated before us? It is a faith that overcomes obstacles. Now, in order to get the full story, you can't get it just from Matthew. You have to look at Luke and Mark to see just what, th- what these men and this paralytic went through. Listen to Mark 2, verse 2 through 4. So many people gathered, it says there, that they was, there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was on. Incredible obstacles faced these men that day. Now, we think, if only I had lived back then, I would be able to go and spend sweet time with Jesus. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and it's just me and Jesus, just the two of us spending sweet fellowship together. Is that what it would have been like? Not at all. You wouldn't even make, get, get close to Jesus. You couldn't even get close. Huge crowds were around Jesus all the time. And so these men bringing this paralytic on a mat couldn't even get close to Jesus. And so what did they do? Well, they had obstacles, but they also had a genuine faith. And so they overcame these obstacles. They said, we're not giving up. We're not going to go away. We've carried him all this way. We're not going to turn back. Jesus is able to heal him. What shall we do? Can you imagine standing there? Maybe there were four of them. I don't know. And they were talking among themselves how to get him through. I said, I have an idea. Why don't we go up onto, it was probably Peter's house. I think Peter was, he was living in Peter's house. Why don't you go up onto the roof and dig through and maybe we can drop him down in front. And so that's exactly what they did. They removed some of the tiles. They ruined Peter's roof in order that they might get this man right in front of Jesus. And so they lower him down. This is an obstacle overcoming faith. And any genuine faith from God overcomes obstacles. It doesn't matter what Satan or what anyone puts in front of that faith. They're going to overcome. There was another obstacle too, and that's just the theology of suffering that the Jews had back then. They believed that anyone who was suffering, any paralyzed man, any blind man, anybody who had, who had a disease, it was because of specific sin that they had committed. And so they would be considered to some degree outcasts. They had done something wrong. We don't know what it is, but there was some sin there. This attitude comes across in Job chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Consider now, said Job's friends to him, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble, they reap it. In other words, this guy must have done something terribly wrong in order to be paralyzed. And so he had to get over that. They had to get over that and say, we don't care what anybody thinks about us. We want to be healed. And so they came to Christ. Faith works. Faith overcomes. Look again at verse 2. When Jesus saw their faith. Now, there's two different ways to take that. First of all is that Jesus had the ability to see into their hearts, to perceive the true status of their souls before God. He could perceive their faith. 
Is that true? Absolutely he could. He could read their hearts and their minds. We're going to see that more later in the text. But he could perceive that they had faith. And not just faith for healing, but faith for salvation. He had the ability to perceive, to look into their hearts. But there's another truth here as well. You would have been able to see their faith by what it accomplished, by what it did. A true saving faith is not a quiet inner thing that never breaks out into your life. But rather, as James says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is useless. And so this was a genuine faith accompanied by deeds, accompanied by actions. They carried the man. They dug through the roof. They would not give up. It was an active, living faith. Faith overcomes obstacles. Faith defeats those things that Satan puts in front of it. If you look at Romans chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but Abraham is our example, our father in faith. Now, how was it that Abraham was justified? Well, the scripture says very plainly that God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed that promise and it was credited him as righteousness. What was the promise? He took him out and had him look up at the stars. He said, look at those stars, Abraham. I know that you're barren. I know that your wife is barren. You have no children. I know that. But look at the stars and here's my promise to you. So shall your offspring be. That's a promise of God. Abraham heard that promise. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, in order to believe God, however, he had to overcome some obstacles, didn't he? He had to face the fact, Romans 4 says, that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that his wife Sarah's womb was also dead. He had to face that fact. He didn't have an ostrich faith with his head in the ground, not facing the obstacles. Instead, he saw the obstacles. He saw what was in front and he said, I believe you anyway, because you are sovereign. You are almighty. You are powerful. You can do anything. And so also it is that anyone who would desire to come to personal faith in Christ must overcome obstacles. You know, if you want to become a Christian, you have to basically run across a landmine strewed barbed wire infested machine gun nest world in which Satan opposes every step of the way. First John chapter five says everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. You want to come to personal faith in Christ. You need to be a conqueror. You need to be an overcomer. And so it says in Revelation 21, 6 and 7, He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Listen, he who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. It's to the overcomer that salvation comes. And these persistent actions, they speak of a deep faith. They refused to be stopped and so also it speaks of the humility of faith not only is faith obstacle overcoming not only is it persevering but it is also humble and brokenhearted this man by his physical inabilities actually pictures all of us before the throne of god isn't that true this man could not move he couldn't do anything in order to survive he had to be a beggar and so jesus said blessed are the spiritual beggars for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. It's only the beggars, the helpless ones, the ones who know that they are needy, spiritually needy, that go to heaven. 
And so we see in verse 2, pardoned by faith in Christ. When Jesus saw this kind of faith, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Most incredible thing about this, the most astonishing thing is the price and the cost of this forgiveness. Jesus looked down at them and gave this man, this one man, the greatest gift that any king has ever given. Full pardon, full forgiveness of sins. Now, it's not great if you don't understand what kind of record of sins awaits you apart from Christ. The Bible says very plainly that on judgment day, you will have to give an account for every careless word you have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted and by your words, you will be condemned. And so there's a careful record being kept of everything we've ever said or done, everything we didn't say and didn't do, every opportunity we did not take advantage of. All of these things, these sins, careful record being kept because our God is a just and righteous judge. And at that moment, Jesus looks down and says to this man, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, your sins are forgiven. Now, it was not the effort and the struggle and the obstacle overcoming that earned them salvation. Not at all, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. You can dig through a million roofs and you'll never be saved. But it's simple faith in Jesus Christ that saves. Now, there's an interesting detail here in verse 2. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. It's very easy to make a misstep here. Now, I myself, as many of you know, was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And in the Catholic Church, especially in the Middle Ages, they had the idea of a treasury of merit. The idea was that other righteous people, saints they called them, went before us and lived more righteous than you really needed to live in order to get to heaven. And so they had some righteousness left over. And it was, as it were, put into a bank account for you. And this treasury of merits is a thing that you're drawing on if you're not as good as them. And so they've made their extra. It's kind of like an inheritance. They bequeath to you their extra righteousness. Not quite enough to get you to heaven, but it's enough to help. Maybe reduce your, your time in purgatory some. And so I myself have attended a mass for a dead person. The idea is that as we do righteous things, we can actually help other people reduce their time in purgatory, even get them out of hell into heaven. Well, this is utterly false. We Baptists know that God has no grandchildren, don't we? Just because you have a godly father, godly mother, godly Sunday school teacher, godly pastor, doesn't save you. You have to yourself, personally, individually, appropriate the salvation that is available through faith in Christ. And so Jesus knew his theology of salvation very well. And when he looked down to that paralyzed man and said to him, your sins are forgiven. He didn't forget what was going on. He knew that this man had faith to believe for salvation. And so he believed. But the Bible does say when Jesus saw their faith. Well, what is that? I think what it means is that the faith of faithful people can actually make it easier for others to trust Christ. Missionaries go out. Hudson Taylor, for example, the one who threw himself on a map of China and said, give me China or I die. Oh, he had a faith strong faith and went to the inland regions where it was tough and witnessed to the Chinese. Did he have a faith? Oh, he had a faith. He was in effect dragging all these paralyzed Chinese people, paralyzed spiritually to Christ, and they were able to trust in Christ through his faithful life, through his witness. And so we, by our faith, can make it easier for others to believe. 
by preaching the gospel, by living in front of them a witness. But ultimately, each individual person must believe for him or herself. And so we have this incredible good news from the judge. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I think at this moment we have to think about a, an expression we use here in America. Have you ever used or heard this expression before? Consider the source. Consider the source. Somebody is insulting you and you just want to come and somebody comforts you and says, well, consider the source. You're a very negative or critical person. Don't think about it. Consider the source means look at the individual who's saying it and weigh accordingly. Well, I'm urging you to consider the source of the one who said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Imagine that you were accused of a serious crime and you were being dragged into court to face a judge. And as you're dragged into court, some bystander who you've never met calls out to you and says, be encouraged, you're acquitted. You can go home. Would you be happy at that moment? Would you feel a sense of joy filling your heart? Oh, I am? I'm acquitted? Consider the source. They're just a bystander. They have no authority, you see, to make that statement, do they? But suppose an hour or two later, the judge says, take heart, son, you're acquitted. And then the gavel goes down, case dismissed. Would you be encouraged at that particular moment? Yes, consider the source. This one's the judge, and he has acquitted you. You're free to go home. So who is it that spoke these words, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven? Well, this was, in fact, and is, the judge of all the earth. Jesus Christ is, in fact, the judge of all the earth. Listen to John 5, 22. Moreover, it says, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. So all judgment in heaven and earth, under, under the earth, has been, has been entrusted to Jesus, and He will be the one sitting on the throne. When I witnessed sometimes, recently I was on an airplane witnessing, and I was talking to them about the Ten Commandments. Well, I've never murdered, I've never committed adultery, I've never done these things. I said, well, Jesus actually gave us a legal commentary on the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. You may not have murdered, but have you ever been angry with your brother? You're in danger of the fire of hell. You may ne never have committed adultery, but have you ever looked at a woman lustfully? You're in danger of the fire of hell. Well, that's just Jesus' opinion. No, it isn't. He's the judge who's going to be sitting and judging you. He will be the one who will apply the law of Moses. And therefore, his opinion in this matter matters greatly because he is the judge of all the earth. And so, if on the other hand, Jesus looks at you, if you can feel him right now, looking at you through me and saying to you, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Now that is something. And that's what happened to that paralyzed man that day. The judge of the all, all the earth looked down at him and said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. But meditate now with me on the cost of that statement. Remember I told you that one of the aspects of Jesus' kingdom is his perfect righteousness. If we had, for example, a judge who looked out at a, uh, a murderer, the evidence is clear that this person committed the crime, and the judge said, you know, I'm a nice guy. I'm a kind individual. Case dismissed. They might be a kind individual, but would they be a good judge? A righteous judge? Not at all. Jesus is a righteous judge. And so when he said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven, what he said was, in effect, the blood necessary to atone for your sins will be shed on your behalf. Your death penalty will be paid for you. For the wages of sin is death. 
The book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Later in Matthew's gospel, at the Last Supper, Jesus took a cup filled with wine, and he offered it, gave it to all of them, and said, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And so when Jesus spoke these words, they were not idle words. They were expensive words. Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven means I will pay for all of the things you've ever done wrong. I will pay for your sins with my own blood. Well, at this particular moment, some teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. They were provoked by their own faith, faithlessness against Jesus Christ. This was a very serious charge, blasphemy. Blasphemy means to take on yourself, in this case, to take on yourself attributes of deity, something that only God could say or do, or to use the divine and blessed name in a careless, flippant way. That's what blasphemy was. This would be, eventually, the charge that would kill Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, Jesus made the statement, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. At that moment, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. There's no time anymore for discussion. No, no more time to listen to the teaching. I and the Father are one means I am God. They picked up stones to stone him. Jesus said, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? They answered, the Jews answered, we are not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, Make yourself equal to God. And so later in Matthew's gospel, the high priest, he's standing in front of the high priest. He's on trial for his life. And the high priest says to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said, I am. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Now, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you say? And they all yelled, he's deserving of death. This would be the very charge that would kill Jesus Christ, this blasphemy. Now, they uttered true doctrine, didn't they? They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins like this. They were right. Their doctrine was true. Only God can forgive sins like this. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Now imagine another illustration that you were a police officer and arrested a man for burglary. Caught the man right in the act. Suppose the homeowner was right there, standing there. Homeowner's a Christian, loves the Lord, and says, Officer, I want you to know that I forgive this person completely for what they've done, and I'm not going to press charges. Is there any weight to that? Well, absolutely. That person is the one who's been transgressed against. And so it is that all of you can and should Forgive people who transgress against you. But suppose, again, you were that officer and the burglar was caught in the act and the uh, neighbor across the street comes in the room and says, I want you to know, officer, I forgive this person's sins. Who are you? You'd think the person's crazy. What right do you have to make the statement that some sin that this individual committed, not against you, is forgiven? And not just any sin, but all the sins are forgiven. Only God can make this kind of statement. Were they right? Were the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, right? Yes, they were. 
but they missed it through unbelief. What would the logical conclusion be? That this is God. God is in front of them. God can say this thing and therefore Jesus is God. He can make this statement. But instead they concluded that he was a blasphemer. And so Jesus gives them some proof. Some proof for faith. Look at verses 4 through 8. Knowing their thoughts, and Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? (laughs) But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. The whole crowd was filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. Now we have evidence of Christ's deity, the logic of faith. He's reasoning with them here. He's saying, let me ask you a question. Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? I was at a vacation Bible school once in St. Martin, talking to the kids there, and I divided them in half, and I said, I want half of you to say, your sins are forgiven. And I want the other half of you to say, rise and walk. Okay, so the ones on the left, your sins are forgiven. The ones on the right, rise and walk. I said, okay, which is easier? Which of the two is easier? They said, rise and walk. I said, why? Because it's only got three words. (laughs) There's nothing to the saying, but there's something to the doing. There's nothing to the words, but there's something to the power of the words. You see, we throw words around all the time, don't we? They don't mean much to us. It's a whole different thing with God. When he speaks, it is. He's not a liar like us. And when he speaks, it is. He used words to create heaven and earth. He used words to say, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke through the prophets, and every word is true. And when he wanted to communicate finally and speak a final word to the human race, he sent his son, who is called the living word of God. We throw words around. Jesus doesn't. So that you may know that my words have power. Watch this. That's the logic of faith. Now, first of all, we skipped a mighty miracle already. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them. You you see, the fact of the matter is they never vocalized their statement, their feeling that Jesus was speaking blasphemy. Now, I could test you right now. I was going to test you on which is easier to say, but I don't know that you would have followed like the kids and spoken out loud, but you can go home and practice at home and see which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk. But I want you right now to tell me what I'm thinking about. Right now, I'm thinking about how long I should do this. Can you read my mind? No. But Jesus... Can. As a matter of fact, all of your secret thoughts lay open before him. Before a word is on your tongue, he knows it completely. This is the God we worship. And so Jesus can read minds. And he said, uh, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? <laughs> That's startling, isn't it? Were you reading my mind? Yes, I was. I have the power to read minds. And all of your thoughts will come before me again on judgment day. But I just want you to know I have the power to do that. But I have a greater power than that. I have the power to heal bodies. 
so that you may know that this man's sins have already been forgiven. Now stop for a moment and meditate on that. All this time this discussion's been going on, this paralyzed man has been laying there and his physical condition hasn't changed at all. But his spiritual condition is radically different. He is saved now. If he were to die at that moment, he would go to heaven and not to hell. Can he feel the difference? No, he cannot. But by faith, he knows it's happened. It's already occurred. His sins are forgiven simply by the word spoken by Jesus. But so that you may know that it's happened, he speaks to that paralyzed man and says, rise and walk. Now, it's nothing to the same. I could have been in front of Lazarus's tomb after he'd been dead four days and said, Lazarus, come out. I wouldn't have done it, though, because I know what would happen. Nothing, because I'm not the son of God. But when Jesus says it, he just speaks and it is because with his words come power. And Jesus speaks and he says to the paralyzed man, rise and walk. And at the moment that he speaks it, whatever disease, some nerve disease or some problem with his spinal column, we have no idea. It is instantly healed by the power of Jesus Christ. This is the God that we worship, not in word only, but also in power. First Corinthians 420 for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The word of the gospel is powerful simply by believing. Now, I want you to understand it's because of this that all the miracles were done. Jesus wasn't opening up a permanent miracle shop so that every time somebody was hurt, they could run to Jesus or be carried to Jesus and be healed but rather so that we might know why he really came, the forgiveness of sins. And that power is here even today. The reality is in heaven. The evidence is on earth. Verse 7, And the man got up and went home. Do you believe? Do you believe it happened? Do you believe that Jesus has this kind of power? Even more, do you believe that by his death on the cross, all of your sins can be forgiven? Do you think you need a savior? Do you believe and accept what I said earlier? Namely, that the greatest need any human being ever has is forgiveness of sins. No greater. Even if you're paralyzed, the greatest need is forgiveness of sins. Do you believe that today? Because if so, then salvation is available simply by believing and hearing the word. That's all. Faith comes by hearing the word. That's all. And that healing power is here today. What kind of application can we take for this? Number one, rejoice in Christ's unlimited power, not in word only, but in deed and in truth. Look at verse eight. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. Rejoice that Jesus hasn't changed. He's the same today as he was then. Secondly, complete forgiveness of sins. Earlier I asked you, to think about what your burdens were. Perhaps you came in here with burdens, burdens of health problems, physical loneliness, other problems, difficulties, unemployment, broken relationships. All of them are small compared to the need for forgiveness of sins. Set your hierarchy properly. And if you know, and you know by faith that your sins have been forgiven through Jesus Christ, then you can say in the words of the hymn we heard earlier, it is well with my soul. No matter what's going on with my body, it is well with my soul. But did Jesus heal this man? Yes, he did. He cares 
about your problems. He just wants you to know the hierarchy. First, forgiveness of sins. Second, all these other things. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you as well. Thirdly, an obstacle overcoming faith. Any good thing you want to do for God, there's going to be obstacles. Any good thing you want to do. Do you have an obstacle overcoming faith the way these men did? Would you have turned away and gone home shrugging and saying, I'm sorry, we tried? Or would you have climbed up on the roof and dug through? What kind of faith do you have? Do you have a small faith or an obstacle overcoming faith? And fourthly, I want you to be an instrument by your faith in leading others to Christ. You could find yourself in two ways in this story. You could find yourself the paralyzed one who's totally forgiven by Jesus Christ. Or you can find yourself the one carrying the one who needs to be forgiven. I think you should find yourself in both ways. First the one and then the other. I want this church to be a witnessing church. I want you to carry people to Jesus who need him. I want you to invite your friends and your family to church. I want you to open your mouth this week and speak for Christ. Have the courage to bring somebody to Christ this week. Our God is a great God. And the same power that was available then for healing and for forgiveness is available today for salvation. Won't you join with me in prayer? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.